Good afternoon, everyone. I have 12.30, so we always want to honor everyone's time. I know lunch hours are kind of rushed for a lot of people. So every week we come, we start eating at 12, even if I'm not here or you know, one or two of you are here. Uh, and then 12.30 to 1, we go through the Bible together. We're in Exodus, the book of Exodus, and we've been going through it for... We're chapter 18 today, so like, what's that, 18, 19, probably about 20 weeks. That's usually our pace. We get about a chapter a week. Uh, somebody asked me, well, what are you going to do next? <laughs> I said, I don't know, maybe a little bit. The point of the study, if you've never come before, is you go to church, you hear a sermon. Usually it's got a catchy message, a catchy title upbeat worship, or if you like the traditional, or if you like the gospel, whatever kind of worship you like, you get that. You hear a message that's usually 15 to 30 minutes long. It's often great, because there are some great preachers in Charlotte. And then you go home, and you read the Bible maybe once or twice a day, tops. You pick it up, you read a passage from a devotional, do a meditation, you have maybe a little book you read that tells a story about a kitten being lost, or God giving somebody a job, or something, and a passage from Philippians, and then you go about your day. None of that's wrong, but that's not Bible study. And what we try to do here, what Jeff and I, Jeff is the owner of Ruth Chris. He, he's, he's the one that provides us food in this space, which is amazing. Um, he wants to provide a place where people can come on a weekly basis and learn the Bible. That was his goal when he and I were talking, and, and, and I was talking about taking over the study from the uh, previous uh, friend of mine who used to lead us, Steve right? He, he was looking for somebody to step up and take over because he had to step down for some other ministry stuff. And so I met with Jeff, and he said, you know, I just want people to know the Bible. Because if they know the Bible, that can inform how they live their life. And that can prevent them from doing some of the stuff I've done with my life. That's what he said. And I said, I absolutely agree. This was foundational for how people in Jesus' day and thousands of years before learned theology, learned scripture, learned ethics. They did it by reading their stories. They didn't do it by a, a, a four-point sermon, you know, or they didn't do it by a six steps to peace with God or seven keys to a better you or five keys to selling this book or whatever those things are. They did it by learning the story of God's people and seeing where they fit into it. That's Bible study. Whether it's Old Testament or New Testament, that's something that we've largely lost as a church, as a people, Christians. We've lost that because we don't take the time to do what we try to do here each week, which is just slow down and read through the text. Talk about the stuff that pops up that's weird. Talk about the stuff that's uncomfortable. Talk about the stuff that's boring. All of that are conversations that have been going on for thousands of years. And so we try to do that each week in a little 30-minute chunk. If you can't make it each week, hey, there's a camera right there. And it's not just because I'm vain. It's because we post this. I post this on YouTube every day. YouTube, search, Disciple Dojo, one word, D-I-S-C-I-P-L-E-D-O-J-O, -O, one word, Disciple Dojo. Every week's videos from all the way back to Genesis 15 are on our page. We also record the audio and put it up on iTunes and on SoundCloud. So if you're a podcaster, you want something to listen to while you're running, while you're working out, while you're driving in your car, you can download all of Exodus so far. You can catch up in little 30-minute chunks. If you can have a business meeting, you can't make it here one week. These are all ways that, that we do to make sure that you're able to stay grounded in Scripture as we read it together in community. 
Um, whenever I teach a course on interpreting the Bible, I always start off by teaching people the Bible was never, 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 never meant to be read and studied alone, ever. No one was ever meant to just have their Bible and their quiet time and their time with Jesus, and that's it. It was always in community with each other, talking with each other, arguing with each other, lifting one another up, praying for each other. All of that kind of stuff is integral to Bible study. And so what we're doing here is all part of that. That being said, we're in Exodus 18. Israel has come out of Egypt through miraculous dealings. God has used the, what we call the plagues of Egypt, has used that to systematically pick off every single one of Egypt's gods, has used the plagues of Egypt to show basically that the gods of Egypt, who are symbolized or personified by Pharaoh himself, who is seen as the firstborn son of the gods, is powerless in the face of the one true God, the one living God. Because humanity, if you remember, when you were here for when we went through Genesis, humanity drifted from God's knowledge almost immediately. They started going after other gods, started creating other gods. They didn't like the God of Scripture. They created a God of their own doing. The God of the Bible wasn't enough for them. The God of Abraham wasn't enough for them. They created gods of their own makings, of their own desires, of their own liking. God they could understand, a God they could carve out of wood or stone, put in their pocket and carry with them and treat like a rabbit's foot, you know, rub it for good luck or burn a little incense to get the crops to grow or all of the kind of things. That's the world that Israel was in. And God called Israel out of Egypt in part, in huge part, to show the rest of the surrounding nations that he was the one true God, that their gods were hollow, that their gods were man-made creations, that their gods were spiritually impotent. And that's what God did through the Exodus, bringing Israel out in such a dramatic fashion. And so he brings them out. He brings them into the desert. Now, they've been in the desert for three months. Okay? Three months God's provided for them through miraculous provision of water, miraculous provision of this stuff that we don't know what it is. It's just called what is it, which in Hebrew is manna, which is where we get manna. Um, he provided for them daily, met their needs, and is forming them and teaching them who he is. And he even provided in the last chapter a defeat over a fearsome marauding band of raiders known as the Amalekites. Remember we said last week, if you've seen Mad Max, that's kind of the Amalekites, all right? Out in the desert, crazy guys attacking people that they can pick off at their weakest to take their stuff. All right, that's the Amalekites. And he provided, God uh, protected Israel from the Amalekites Last week we saw that, and now, right after that defeat, just like back in Genesis when Abraham was given an almost miraculous victory over these five invading kings, those of you that remember way back, it was about, about a year and a half ago, Abraham was given a miraculous victory. He went, he, he took back the people, the relatives that had been kidnapped by these, this coalition of kings, these forces, with only 300 trained Hebrew samurai. We talked about that if you were here. Um, and he brought them back. And then as soon as he brought them back, this guy named Melchizedek comes out, who's a high priest, a pagan, Gentile, high priest. He comes out, Abraham tells him about what happened, and he and, that, and Melchizedek worship, have a meal together, and there's this moment where you see a glimpse of God's working outside of just Israel, because even this pagan priest is a priest to God and has knowledge of God. Well, now it's the same thing happening in Exodus. This is recapitulating the same concept is happening once again, only now it's Moses. They just defeated the Amalekites, 
and this impressive victory by this ragtag group of probably about 50 to 100,000 slaves, uh, ex-slaves that are now free, but they don't have any military training, they don't have any uh, civilization structural training, they don't have any, uh, just, they, they don't even know who they are as a people yet, they're learning that. And they have this victory over a, over a fearsome band of raiders. And now, chapter 18, verse 1 says, Now Jethro, priest of Midian, father-in-law of Moses, heard of everything God had done for Moses and for his people Israel, and how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. We've met Jethro before. He's Moses' father-in-law. Moses went and fled to Midian. So think about it this way. This is where math would be helpful. But um, that would work. So here's Egypt down here, all right? And the coastlines goes this way, and this is the Sinai Peninsula here, the big triangle shape on the map. And then over here, you have modern Saudi Arabia, and then it stretches up, and you have the Dead Sea, and then here you have Israel. All right, so that's kind of the, the, the swoop of where everything's headed. So Midian is here in Saudi Arabia, modern Saudi Arabia. Midian is where Moses fled from Egypt across the desert, across the Sinai, to Midian. For 40 years, he stayed there tending sheep. And while he was tending sheep around this mountain in Midian, he saw this bush. And the bush was burning, but it wasn't being consumed. And so he said, hmm, that's weird. Let me go check it out. So he goes over, has this encounter with God, and God says, you're going to go back to Egypt, and you're going to bring my people back to this mountain. And when you do that, that's the sign that I will be with you, that you'll have succeeded. Well, during that time, while he's in Midian for 40 years, he meets and marries a lady. Remember the incident at a well, and in the Bible, whenever there's a well and there's girls, somebody's getting married. So he goes, he meets this lady named Zipporah, and he marries her. Well, her father-in-law is the high priest of this area, Midian, so a pagan high priest. So Moses marries into that family. And then at one point, he tells Zipporah and Jethro and his two sons by that point, hey, God's called me to bring the people out. So he goes back to Egypt to carry out his mission. It's a dangerous mission. It's a long journey. So Zipporah and his sons stay with their family in Midian. Okay? So fast forward. Now, that's where we are. We're back in Midian at Mount Sinai. That's where God has brought him. And so he's having a reunion with his in-laws. So Jethro comes out, and he's heard all this stuff. Now, when Moses first said, hey, uh, Jethro, I'm going to go and lead a nation out of Egypt, which is the most powerful empire in the history of the world at this point. Jethro is probably thinking, all right, you're crazy, and you're not going to take my grandkids. So he went, he did his thing, he's come back. Now Jethro realizes, wow, something's happened. This is pretty incredible. So, verse 2, after Moses had sent away Zipporah, this is earlier, his father-in-law Jethro received her and her two sons. One name was Gershom, for Moses said, I have become an alien in a foreign land. Gershom means alien or sojourner or immigrant there. And the other one's name was Eliezer, for he said, my father's God was my helper. He saved me from the sword of Pharaoh. Eliezer, uh, Eli means my God, and Ezer means salvation or deliverance. It's the word that's first used of woman when God creates and says there's no suitable helper to be found. That's that word, Azer. It means one who comes along and aids or delivers. So he has his two sons and they're named after what God's done in his life. And now he's reuniting with these two sons and his father-in-law and his wife. Verse 5, Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, together with Moses' sons and wife, came to him in the desert where he camped near the mountain of God, Mount Sinai or Mount Horeb. So they're there. They're at the mountain. They've made it back where the burning bush was. 
Jethro sent word to him, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons. So he's sending an official messenger ahead and say this. So Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. Common greeting in the ancient world. You bow down to show reverence and you kiss one another. Doesn't have the same connotations we have today, but in the biblical world, greetings were a kiss. Sometimes in, in, in Near East cultures today, you'll see the double kiss, and that's even trickled up into some European cultures. You know, you, you kiss on the cheeks. All of that goes back to this uh, period in history. Today, we just do the simple handshake. Moses uh, went out to meet his father-in-law, bowed down and kissed him. They greeted each other. Literally, the Hebrew says they asked one another if there was peace to them or how they were doing or if they were well. And they went into the tent. Moses told his father-in-law about everything the Lord had done to Pharaoh and the Egyptians for Israel's sake and about all the hardships they had met along the way and how the Lord had saved them. So Moses recounts everything. He's telling, he's giving his testimony. Moses is being an evangelist here. And he's telling his father-in-law, he's witnessed. This is what God has done. He tells him about the great things God did against uh, Pharaoh and against the gods of Egypt. But look what it says. I love this. And about the hardships they encountered along the way. He tells him, hey, it hadn't been easy. We've been thirsty. They've been grumbling against me. We've had to eat this stuff that we don't even know what it is. We're just trusting that God's going to provide it every day. We've been in the desert for three months. His testimony is not just the mountaintop experience. His testimony is not just God has a wonderful plan for your life and if you just say yes, everything's going to be awesome. It's not. It's, hey, God's awesome and he's done great things, but there's been some hardships along the way. That gets lost in a lot of modern evangelism. We prepare people for a life of ease, a life of wonder or glory, and oh, God's just going to make everything great. And then the first time the storm hits and they say, where is this God? Well, I thought you said everything's supposed to be great. I said yes to Jesus. Where's my mansion? Where's my health and wealth? Where's my people loving me? Where's all that peace and all this stuff that I'm supposed to have? And it's, and it's incumbent on, I think Moses is a good model of evangelism here in that he's, he's giving him the whole story. He's saying life in the desert is amazing. And it's also amazingly hard. But it's worth it because he is the one true God. He's who we follow. He leads us. The pillar of cloud, the pillar of fire, we go where it leads us. And sometimes it's hard. So Moses shares it all. It's, it's kind of an unfiltered account. And I just think that's a great insight. Then verse 9, Jethro was delighted to hear about all the good things the Lord had done for Israel in rescuing them from the hands of the Egyptians. He said, verse 10, praise be to Yahweh. If you have English translation, it will say the Lord, but it's in all capital letters because that is God's real official name in the Hebrew text. Yahweh, I am. Praise be to Yahweh who rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians and of Pharaoh and who rescued the people from the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that Yahweh is greater than all other gods, for he did this to those, those gods, who had treated Israel arrogantly. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and other sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law in the presence of God. This is a Gentile conversion. And it's not just any Gentile conversion. This is the high priest of the Midianites. This is the guy, this is like the Pope of the Midianites. The pagan Pope. Alright? And he's heard about this and he realizes, hey, my son-in-law's God is the one true God. 
and he's excited about this, and he accepts it, and he says, now I know that Yahweh, remember what we've been hearing all through Exodus? I'll bring you out of Egypt, I'll do these plagues on the gods of the Egyptians, so that they will know that I am the Lord. This is fruit of that. It's bearing fruit. The Exodus story, the redemption of God's people, is bearing fruit among the nations. That's what God wanted all along. Back in Genesis, I, when he called Abram, Genesis 12, God calls Abram and he says, uh, go to the land I'll show you. I'll make your name great. I'll make you into a great nation. You'll be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you. I'll curse those who curse you. We've seen all that so far. And then the last point is, so that in your offspring or through your offspring, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. The whole point of Israel's calling and choosing and redeeming and freeing from Israel, from Egypt was because they had an evangelistic purpose. Israel was chosen to be the instrument by which the whole rest of the world would hear about God's glory and be drawn into a worship of God, and it happens right here. Jethro, the pagan pope, the high priest, and Moses' in-law. You know how hard it is to get your in-laws to believe something that you want them to believe, right? Like, somebody would be okay saying, oh, well, the preacher said thus and such, but when that preacher is also your son-in-law, who you lived with for 40 years, who used to be your hired shepherd boy, now you start to see the supernatural uh, elements taking place in this testimony. Something amazing happened for Jethro to experience all of this and to come to a faith in God. And he didn't just say, oh, God's great, awesome, I'm going to go back to Midian. He said God is greater than all the other gods. He established the faith that God was wanting the nations to see. And he presented sacrifices in the presence of Moses of Aaron, the high priest, and of the elders, the people's leadership. Jethro joined in with the community people of God, the covenant people of God. He was brought into the spiritual family of Israel through their testimony. This is a Gentile conversion. And he has a covenant meal with him. He shares a covenant meal. That's what you would do in the ancient world. If you entered into, excuse me, a binding agreement, a covenant agreement with people, a covenant relationship, you would seal that by having a sacrifice and then you would take the animal that you had sacrificed and offered, and you would eat it together. They shared a meal, and the meal consisted of the sacrifice, and that's one of the reasons that we mentioned it's so important that Christians do what we're doing today, which is gathering around and sharing meals in a holy setting. That's what God wanted all along. So they have this sacrificial covenant meal. Jethro's come into the faith of Israel, and he's excited about it. Then verse 13. The next day Moses took his seat to serve as judge for the people. And they stood around him from morning till evening. When his father-in-law saw all that Moses was doing for the people, he said, what's this you're doing for the people? Why do you alone sit as judge while all these people stand around you from morning till evening? Moses answered him, because the people come to me to seek God's will. Whenever they have a dispute, it's brought to me and I decide between the parties and inform them of God's decrees and God's laws. The Torah hadn't been given yet. The covenant hadn't yet. The only conduit the people had to the knowledge of God or the desires of God for them as a people was Moses. He was their leader. They had learned to look to him, but to an unhealthy degree. Now they were looking to him to settle every dispute. He was the lawgiver. He was the judge. He was the leader. They learned that lesson, but he was the only one. And it was wearing him out, and it was wearing them out. They were coming, and they were bringing cases to him, and standing around all day, waiting for justice while the backlog continued. 
because he could only hear and see and pray for and discern so many people. So Jethro now, this this pagan, former pagan, Gentile high priest who's just come to faith in God's people comes in and says, what are you doing here? Like, why are you listening to everybody's petitions? How is this helpful to anybody? And Moses is like, well, that's, that's what I do. They come to me and I give them God's verdict. So his response then, verse 17, Moses, the father-in-law, replied, what you are doing is not good. You and these people who come to you will only wear yourselves out. The work is too heavy for you. You can't handle it alone. Listen now to me and I'll give you some advice. And may God be with you. You must be the people's representative before God and bring their disputes to him. Teach them the decrees and the laws and show them the way to live and the duties they are to perform. But select, and NIV says capable, but the word is really strong or, or, or uh, powerful or able or upright. It's, it's a different word than just capable. But select capable men from all the people. Men who fear God, trustworthy men who hate dishonest gain, and appoint them as officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. Those are, those are military segments, and they aren't literal numbers. Thousands, we've already seen before, it's that word elef, and it can mean clan or tribe or uh, uh, brigade or whatever you want to translate it. But it's just groups. This is every strata of Israel's society. They're grouped by the thousands, they're grouped by the hundreds, and then those are grouped by the fifties and then the tens. So what Jethro is saying is appoint people under you to oversee those different levels of the clans and the families of Israel. Don't try to do it all yourself. Verse 22, have them serve as judges for the people all the time, but have them bring every difficult case to you. The simple cases they can decide themselves. That will make your load lighter because they will share it with you. If you do this and God so commands, in other words, he's not just saying do this, but he's saying if you do this, if God agrees with it, you will be able to stand the strain and all these people will go home satisfied. Moses listened to his father-in-law and did everything he said. He chose capable men from all Israel and made them leaders of the people, officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. They served as judges for the people at all times. The difficult cases they brought to Moses, but the simple ones they decided themselves. And Moses sent his father-in-law on his way and Jethro returned to his own country. So this pagan convert comes in, has this encounter where he hears about what God has done, he hears from Moses, he, he, he gets saved, as we would say in modern circles. He comes to faith in God, and it's an amazing thing. And then in the very same chapter, that pagan newbie to the faith, what does he know? He wasn't in Egypt, he hasn't been through, he hasn't heard from God at Sinai, all this stuff. He turns around and tells Moses, you should kind of do it this way. An outside perspective looks in and sees something that's wrong that Moses and all the people had up until then not noticed or either not cared to address. Fresh eyes came in, fresh Gentile pagan eyes, transformed through the Holy Spirit, through salvation, through coming into the kingdom, came in and said, you know, there's probably a better way to do this. And the beauty of it is Moses listened to him. Moses could have said, Dad, father-in-law, um, I am the one who's been on the mountain. I'm the one who talked to the burning bush. I'm the one who led this Bank of America stadium-sized group of people out of Egypt. I think I know what I'm doing. I was the one raised in Egyptian royalty, remember? He doesn't say that, though. 
Moses listens. Why? Because a good idea is a good idea no matter where it comes from. And God used that. Think about this. This is the basis for Western legal civilization. Right? We have courts, appellate courts, Supreme Court. What do we have Supreme Court? That's all people talked about last week. Regardless, we're not talking about that today. Um, but we have that because of this. That structure of there's a lower court and they'll hear a dispute. And if that still not satisfies people, you take it to a higher court. And if that still doesn't satisfy, you take it to a higher court. And eventually the buck will stop at the top with the Supreme Court. And once they rule, done. Well, this is what Israel had. You had your, your tents. So the ruler of maybe a few families. And you take a dispute. And they settle it. And somebody was like, I don't like that. So then they take it to the head of the clan. And then the clan head would give a judgment. I don't like that. So they take it to the head of the tribes. The tribe judge would give a judgment. If that still wasn't able to figure it out or satisfy, finally it would go to Moses, the Supreme Court. He would take it directly to God. A ruling would be given. Done. That settles it. Now think about this. That entire structure was put in place by a convert from a pagan Midianite family. That is, there's no way that somebody would have made that up if they're writing the history of Israel. This is one of the marks of Exodus' authenticity, by the way. Moses is the lawgiver. Moses is the supreme uh, ruler. Moses is the judge. And here in the text, Moses is listening to a pagan high priest who just came to faith in God. Why? Because all truth is God's truth. And a good idea is a good idea no matter where it comes from. And God speaks through even the most unlikely voices. I love that that's sandwiched right in here in this section. Because it gives us a key into how God works outside of the bounds of Israel. Jethro doesn't stay with Moses in Israel. He goes back to Midian. He's got people to lead. He's got a message to spread. He's got to take the gospel, the, the knowledge of what God has done with his people back to Midian. The message goes out. The people of God, this is how God wants evangelism to stream to the nations. And all of this is preserved here in this account that just gets glossed over so quick so we can get to the Ten Commandments. Just give me the rules. Give me the Ten Commandments. And this is so much more foundational and important in setting up the kind of society into which those Ten Commandments were given. So all of this is crucial to see God's forming Israel He's taking them, he's bringing them out of Egypt as a baby. He literally says in Hosea, out of Egypt I've called my son, my firstborn son. Israel is the firstborn son of God. That's how Exodus began, by God saying that. Pharaoh's afflicted my firstborn son, I'm going to require the life of his firstborn son in return. All of this is setting up that Israel is God's firstborn son. Israel is being taken out into the desert. Israel is being prepared in the desert. Israel is being tested in the desert. Israel is going to fail in the desert. But all of this is God molding and shaping his people. So then, fast forward 1,400 years or so, and you have a new Israelite, and he's coming out of Egypt as a baby, and he's going up onto a mountain and speaking to God's people, and he's going into the desert where he's tested, where he's tempted, but he's going to pass where Israel failed. And you start to see how Jesus is reliving the story of Israel in himself. So to understand Jesus in our New Testament, we have to know Israel in the Old Testament. Israel is the paradigm for Jesus, and that's why it gets so frustrating to me when people skip over Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, because that's giving us 
the foundation for who the Messiah is, the foundation for who we are as God's people, and the foundation for the type of God that we seek to serve. So all of this is crucial. All of this is important. There are so many life application lessons, and, and you can take from them as you will. But there's all kinds of stuff in terms of evangelism, in terms of listening to people with outside voices, uh, in terms of speaking your testimony and sharing what God has done, even the bad stuff, even the hardships. Um, all of that is swirling around in these dry, dusty old stories that frequently get so skipped over. So I'm glad that's why we don't do that. So continue to come, continue to read, study. We're going to look at Exodus 19. What's just happened in microcosm with Jethro and Israel is now about to happen in, in, in fullness with all of Israel and God. There's about to be another covenant meal with Moses, Aaron, and the elders of Israel. And it's going to be on the mountain of Sinai. It's going to be with all of the people and with God himself coming down. We are at the halfway point in the book of Exodus. 19 and 20 are literally the mountain peak of the book. I mean, they literally take place on the peak of Mount Sinai. And it's the halfway point in the book. The whole tenor of the book is going to change after chapter 20. So we, we are coming to Mount Sinai. We're journeying to Mount Sinai with the Israelites. When once Mount Sinai happens, everything changes. All right? So we'll start into that next week. We'll get to it, the fullness of it two weeks from now. Uh, continue to come back. Continue to tell your friends, your coworkers, other people. Grab one of my cards. Take it. There's uh, links to the website, all the resources, everything like that. And we have plenty of food. So get some seconds if you're still hungry. Uh, I think these are croutons are made of manna. So, <laughs> thanks for coming. Have a great week. We'll see you next week.